Good, af good afternoon, everyone. Uh, welcome to today's Cato Institute Capitol Hill Briefing. I'm Kurt Couchman, Manager of Government Affairs at the Cato Institute, and I'll be moderating the event today. Uh, for those of you who haven't been to a Cato Hill event before, what we'll do is we'll have each of our speakers give some prepared remarks, and then we'll open the floor to questions and, uh, and some answers. Uh, before we get started, I wanted to make you all aware of the Cato Handbook for Policymakers. It's our piece that uh, lays out what Cato scholars think should be done on a whole variety of issues. Uh, there's 63 chapters, uh, fully a third of them, actually more than a third of them, have to do with some element of our relations with the rest of the world. Uh, the foreign and defense policy section has 13 chapters, international economic policy has five, then we have chapters on global warming, international tax competition, the defense budget, reclaiming the war power, and electronic surveillance. Uh, each chapter begins with a set of policy action items for policymakers, kind of laying out these are the things that should be done, and then the rest of the chapter goes through and explains why our scholars think those things ought to be done. Well, our first speaker today is Matthew Duss. He's a national security researcher and blogger at American Progress. He received a master's degree in Middle East Studies from the University of Washington's Jackson School of International Studies and a BA in Political Science from the University of Washington. Matthew's writing has appeared in, a numer in numerous places, including the Los Angeles Times, the Baltimore Sun, the American Prospects, the Guardian, and he has appeared as a commentator on a number of television and other media programs. Matthew. Hello. Uh Thanks, everyone, for coming, and thanks. Matthew, if you wouldn't mind taking the podium. Oh, <laughs> thank you. Bang your fist on. Yes, yeah, so bang my fist. All right. <clears throat> thanks, everyone, for coming, and thanks especially to Justin and Cato for uh, inviting me to co-present today. So I have uh, four main points I'd like to make, um, the first of which, and the most obvious, is that the events of June 12th significantly changed the game for President Obama's engagement policy with Iran. Iran's supreme leader in the wake of the contested elections has clearly sided with uh, a more hardline faction within the regime dominated by Iran's Revolutionary Guards Corps. It's unclear exactly how this will impact uh, in Iran's internal politics or the engagement, but what it is clear is that forces within the regime who are highly skeptical of the benefits to be gained from rapprochement with the United States have been more empowered. The second point is that Iran's opposition, known collectively as the Green Movement, is diverse. It's made up of a number of factions um, expressing a fair variety of ideas of what a future Iran should look like. Some of those want a reform of the Islamic Republic. Others want to move away from uh, the Islamic Republic to a more explicitly secular system of government. But there is a pretty broad consensus among these groups, as among Iranians in general, in favor of Iranian nationalism, in favor of Iran's right to nuclear power, and against historically interventionist Western power seeking to exploit the unrest for their own strategic gain. The third point is uh, the nuclear program and the negotiations with the P5 plus 1 have become a football in the ongoing internal political battles in Iran. We saw um, just last week Mir Hussein Mousavi, who is one of the most visible spokesmen for the Green Movement, criticizing Ahmadinejad from Ahmadinejad's right, saying that this agreement is not in Iran's interest and um, uh, that there was really nothing to be gained from the agreement as offered by the P5 plus one. The fourth point, um, and this is something I think has not really been appreciated as much here uh, in the United States, is that the fracturing of the clerical establishment support for the regime is, is very significant. This is a regime that um, it calls itself an Islamic republic. 
it uh, derives um, a great, great bit of legitimacy from the clerical establishment, the idea that it is a just Islamic society. And in the wake of June 12th, we saw um, large sections of the clerical establishment break away from the, the regime and begin to criticize it more openly. <clears throat> so as to the first point, um, again, obviously, I think uh, the, the, the post-June 12th demonstrations represented the biggest challenge to the Iranian government since the revolution in 1979. Uh, the protesters drew from the same repertoires of contention as during the revolution, the use of revolutionary rhetoric against Khamenei himself. Uh, casting the supreme leader as the new Shah, the calling of the Takbir, the Allahu Akbar, from the rooftops at nighttime, uh, explicitly repeating um, as that was done um, in the lead up to the revolution. Um, the use of funerals of, of murdered demonstrators for further protests and demonstrations. All, I, I think they're going to have an, a continuing effect. Um, they, they haven't been as big lately as they were in those first days. Most of the demonstrations have been contained within the universities, but you still have leaders like Musavi and Karubi um, talking about we're going to sustain these demonstrations. Um, Musavi said tomorrow, which is known as Students' Day in Iran, it's the anniversary of the taking of the U.S. Embassy, is the next event which they are going to try to uh, utilize uh, to protest the regime. <clears throat> and they've done this um, since June 12th, Quds Day, which is the day which they remember that Quds is the, the Muslim term for Jerusalem. That was hijacked, um, if I want to use that term, by the protesters to protest the regime. So... Um, Interestingly, there was, uh, I'll, I'll just mention this, I don't know if it's accurate, but it you know, kind of puts an interesting spin on things, that the London Telegraph mentioned in an article today, a spokesman from Musavi saying that Musavi would use the Students' Day tomorrow as an opportunity to apologize to the United States for taking the U.S. Embassy. Now, I, I'm a little bit skeptical of that report, but um, I think it's worth mentioning just to, uh, just to kind of get at how opaque things are in uh, internal Iranian politics. Um, just a brief point on Iran's opposition. As I said, it's very diverse. Um, it re there are a number of different ideas about a future Iran. Some are explicitly secular. Some just want a reform of the Iranian system, um, just want fair elections. But I think if, if anybody read Jackson Deal's uh, op-ed yesterday, which I think I was surprised that he was surprised that uh, Iran's protesters are not, in fact, American conservatives. They have their own ideas about um, what, what they want for the future of their country, and those, we shouldn't kid ourselves that those ideas accord with our own, with American interests uh, explicitly. Um, a point on Iran's nuclear program and the way it's being used in, in Iran's eternal politics. As I said, Musavi has criticized uh, Ahmadinejad from his right, saying that we have nothing to gain from the offer of the P5 plus 1, and to understand Musavi's um, role um, in the Iranian nuclear problem, Musavi and Rafsanjani were two of the key actors in the, in the 1980s who resurrected Iran's nuclear program. That nuclear program was begun in the 1950s under uh, President Eisenhower's Atoms for Peace program, and it was scrapped soon after the, the revolution by Ayatollah Khomeini, who felt that the extent to which Iran was dependent on the West for nuclear components and nuclear expertise was going to, to, was going to create this dependence on the West. Musavi and Rafsanjani resurrected the program, uh, saying that we should develop the expertise here domestically. They, uh, and of course the key 
the key fact that um, that they used was the ongoing Iran-Iraq war. Now, it's it's worth worth mentioning here that the Iraq war uh, with Iran from 1980 to 1988 is the key shaping factor in Iran's kind of threat assessment. That is is something that really affects all of Iran's um, perception of its own security. Now, as I said, the, one of the less uh, appreciated points about what happened post-June 12th was the fracturing of the clerical establishment's support for the regime and the moderate Islamist challenge that has been deployed against the regime. Now, I think the term Islamist is used. It's thrown around with some, I think, unfair connotations. There is a range um, of beliefs that I think fall under the term Islamist, uh, some of which are very extreme, obviously, others of which um, uh, are, are more moderate. But um, I think this is one of the more significant things, is that you saw Musavi himself deploying a Islamist critique against the regime, saying that he was ready to be martyred uh, in the fight for more democracy and fair elections in Iran. And now this impacts Iran's attempt, which has been ongoing since the revolution, to present itself to the Muslim world and especially to the, the Arab Middle East as a standard bearer for resistance against Western intervention. Um, now to see Muslim demonstrators in Iran deploying this same rhetoric against the regime, calling the regime unjust, um, I think has had you know, it's done serious damage to Iran's information operations in the Middle East and its attempt to present itself as this standard bearer, I think. In, um, in 2006, after the, uh, the Lebanon war, we saw there was a poll that, that put, um, it w of the Arab Middle East, which put Mahmoud Ahmadinejad and Hassan Nasrallah as number one and number two um, as the most admired leaders. Uh, that shows that Ahmadinejad had some success in presenting himself as uh, the, you know, the lead resistor against Western intervention. But it's, it's, it's unclear yet. Um, I haven't seen any polls since June 12th that would uh, really prove out how Iran has you know, seen damage to this claim, but um, my suspicion is that it would be significant. So thanks very much. All right, thank you, Matthew. Our second speaker today is Justin Logan. He's Associate Director of Foreign Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. He's an expert on U.S. grand strategy, international relations theory, and American foreign policy. His current research focuses on the formation of U.S. grand strategy under unipolarity, the growing role of counterinsurgency and nation-building in U.S. foreign policy, and the intellectual lineage of coin. He has authored numerous policy studies and articles on topics in including international relations theory, U.S.-China policy, U.S.-Russia policy, stabilization and reconstruction operations, and the policy approaches to a nuclear Iran. Incidentally, his paper, uh, the new nuclear proliferation update, was out on the table. I hope you picked that up on your way in. Uh, Justin holds a master's degree in international relations from the University of Chicago and a bachelor's degree in international relations from American University. Justin. Well, with that, I'd just like to conclude and say thank you very much. No, uh, let me just uh, sort of start over again. Uh, thanks to Kurt for putting the event together, for the Cato Conference staff, uh, for Brian for saving the, uh, the multimedia portion of this presentation, and to Matt uh, for setting the table for me uh, so nicely. I sort of have a, 
uh, a little bit easier of a task than Matt does, uh, deciphering the various Byzantine developments in Iranian politics can actually be more difficult than figuring out what's going on on Capitol Hill and in the National Security Council. So uh, Matt had the, uh, the tougher uh, portion, I think, of the presentation today. Um, and in the interest of, of blowing through as quickly as possibly, uh, as quickly as possible, my remarks, uh, I'm just going to make four points similar uh, to what to what Matt made, so that we can open it up to question and answers and have a discussion. Uh, I want to touch briefly on where the P5 plus one negotiations stand right now, uh, what the Congress is up to, uh, which we can get into in more detail in the question and answer period. But just I have one uh, particular. Uh, point to raise on that. Uh, I, I'm actually sort of a skeptic of uh, that there can be any sort of diplomatic uh, resolution of the problem. Uh, I think that one of the characterizations that an analyst has used has been lengthening the fuse uh, on an Iranian nuclear option. I think that's uh, uh, probably a pretty good uh, prospect of what the best that could be produced from these negotiations could be. Uh, and I am in favor of fuse lengthening, uh, but I don't think that I, I, I think that lengthening the fuse will leave the larger underlying issues unresolved, uh, and I'll try to explain why I think that is. And I guess the fourth point I'd like to make, uh, drawing on a paper that I uh, produced, and I guess it was 2007. I guess I want to make the case for why uh, we don't need to panic uh, with respect to the Iranian nuclear program. In the P5 plus one, I think everybody who's been paying attention to this is, is, is somewhat discouraged at this point. Uh, there is what some would characterize as, I think, a pretty typical uh, one step forward, one step backward, one step sideways, uh, sort of twirls occasionally in the Iranian negotiating position. Uh, the formal U.S. position at this point, as stated by Secretary Clinton, is that the United States likes the deal the way it is and would like for Iran to, uh, to agree to comply with the deal as it is. The deal, I'm sorry, the deal that I'm referring to is the sending out of 75% uh, of Iran's LEU uh, for further enrichment and uh, its return for use in, uh, for medical purposes inside of Iran. European powers seem unhappy about the Iranian uh, tap dance, uh, as are we, but it's not clear uh, what they're willing to do sanctions-wise. And once again, we come down to the fact that the Chinese and Russians appear uh, measurably less enthusiastic about the prospect of uh, uh, harsh sanctions uh, on Iran that would really cause a great deal of displeasure in the Islamic Republic. Um, what the Congress is up to, there have been a number of uh, interesting developments. Uh, uh, the defense authorization uh, Bill, boy, I just can't win today, can I? Uh, I'll forget. Uh, anyway, so the Congress has called uh, in the Defense Authorization Bill for the Pentagon to provide uh, a report on, quote, the current and future military strategy of the Islamic Republic of Iran. Uh, it's not at all clear to me that the Islamic Republic of Iran knows what the future military strategy of the Islamic Republic of Iran is going to be. And I think that these questions about future Iranian intentions verge on the sort of realm of metaphysics. Uh, I think that we got into big trouble during the Cold War, uh, attempting to ascertain from afar uh, decisions that have not yet been taken by foreign leaders and crafting our foreign policies according to our interpretations of what these decisions will be. I think that this sort of kerfuffle over the national <coughs> intelligence estimate and now on the home facility are largely uh, in keeping it with this sort of misplaced uh, enthusiasm. 
because the future uh, uh, military strategy of the Islamic Republic of Iran allows one to just sort of spirit in whatever assumptions one would like to make to instantiate his or her own policy choices for today. And I think just the, the most basic level of candor uh, across the aisle among uh, different analysts would allow us to acknowledge that. Uh, but it doesn't appear that there's a great willingness to do so. Um, there's a report that the Pentagon provides to Congress on China that's very similar. Historically, it was on the military capability of uh, the People's Republic of China. But now that similarly has been, uh, uh, Congress has called on uh, the Pentagon to expand the scope of the report to include information regarding U.S. engagement and cooperation with China on security matters and information on additional developments involving China that the Secretary of Defense considers relevant to national security. So we have sort of a general welfare clause <coughs> factor uh, in, the, uh, in the China report that I think is similarly troubling. Um, there's additionally, it seems, a sort of enthusiasm in Congress for additional uh, unilateral sanctions on Iran, uh, representing the common do-something impulse among uh, Congress people. But there really needs to be this sort of Weberian uh, ethic of uh, ethic of outcomes uh, rather than the ethic of intentions. We need to ask ourselves who we think these uh, additional sanctions would empower uh, inside of Iran and who they would diminish and what effects we think that they would have on the implications for a resolution in the P5 plus one, which I've just told you is probably unlikely, but to me a marginal uh, uh, deleterious effect on uh, the P5 plus one simply isn't worth what I think is a real Hail Mary pass sort of option uh, with respect to these sanctions, and we can get into that uh, in more detail in the question and answer period. Um, the third point that I make, the, uh, the nuclear proliferation update that Kurt mentioned that's available outside uh, by me basically says that we shouldn't hope uh, for a diplomatic resolution of the problem of Iran's nuclear program. Uh, but at the same time, I'm in favor of attempting to get a, a diplomatic resolution of uh, Iran's nuclear program. So I have sort of a weird uh, job in advocating the policy option that I think in all probability will fail. Um, I basically think that, the, as, I, as I implied just a minute ago, that the congressional approach uh, is, again, going down this road of unilateral sanctions. It should go without saying the history of unilateral sanctions on oil-rich countries in the Middle East is not a happy one, without referencing uh, any particular examples, even including multilateral sanctions. Moreover, and I haven't dug into this in great detail, and you know, if anybody has uh, their own uh, analysis of this, I'd be welcome. Uh, I'd like to hear it very much. Uh, there was a piece by Gal Luck, the person who does a great deal of research on energy issues and foreign policy a few months ago, in which he implied strongly that Iran's dependence on imported oil, one of the things, I mean, I'm sorry, imported gasoline, one of the things that is supposed to be cut off uh, with some of the legislation that's winding its way through the hill, is diminishing rapidly. His estimate is that uh, Iran's daily gasoline dependence and their definitional problems with the term, uh, being that I don't know what the definition is. Uh, today is 25%. It'll be 15% next year. In 2012, Iran will be a net exporter of gasoline. So this begs a question to me uh, what it is that people on the Hill think will be accomplished by <coughs> sanctions of this sort. Um, in addition, there's been some analysis that has concluded that given the IRGC's uh, growing role in the Islamic Republic, the effect that additional sanctions would have on Iran would be to damage uh, honest people in the productive economy and to disproportionately uh, uh, sort of 
in, or expand the role of the IRGC in the economy and make it a more economically relevant player, which I think is something that we probably on balance would not want. Um, and I think the larger situation, which is sort of dicey to bring up, but I did so uh, anyway in the uh, nuclear <coughs> proliferation update, um, is just a sort of material power imbalance uh, between the United States and Iran. It's common for people like me who are in favor of a uh, diplomatic approach with Iran to talk about the terrible relationship the United States has had with Iran. Iran has contributed a great deal to that terrible relationship. The United States has contributed in some ways to that terrible relationship. But the terrible relationship coupled with material imbalances in military capabilities, in economic might, simply creates a situation where the Iranians in all probability are not going to be able to be convinced that either a breakout nuclear capability or an actual nu nuclear capability itself is not in their security interests. Uh, we saw the recent comment squirrely from uh, Hamenei, I guess it was yesterday, that the United States is, quote, hiding a dagger in negotiations. Um, and relatedly, I think that this repeated media obsession and, and, and obsession within the administration about talking what is, in, what is on the table, what is off the table, uh, is just sort of beside the point. The doves say you should say that the military option is off the table. The hawks say that you should say that the military option is on the table. I was always under the impression that politicians had a great capability for saying I'm not going to answer questions about hypotheticals and then sort of move on quickly. Uh, but I think that this repeated statement by a variety of policy actors that the military option is on the table, on the table, on the table, has the effect over time uh, of scaring uh, a country that has been added to the axis of evil. And I'm not going to recap the whole litany of uh, uh, things that have been done in the diplomatic relationship between Iran and the United States that could be seen as causing uh, the Iranians to be either a little paranoid or a little concern, depending on your perspective. Um, and I guess in closing, I would just like to make the point that we really don't need to panic. It's a little perplexing sometimes what drives the policy timelines uh, in Washington as compared to uh, sort of the, uh, the reality of the, um, uh, the developments inside of Iran. There's really been a striking history, I think, if I can find the uh, data here, of sort of overestimating Iran's progress toward uh, a nuclear capability. A February 1992 report by the House suggested that uh, two or three nuclear weapons would be operational between February and April 1992 inside of Iran. In 1993, Defense News reported that the CIA believed that Iran could have nuclear weapons within eight to ten years, even without critical assistance from abroad. 1995, the director of uh, Arms Control and Disarmament Agency testified that Iran could have the bomb by 2003. I, I have four pages in this. So I think that, now look, past, past performance is not indication of future results, as anybody who was buying financial stocks a few years ago uh, could tell you in, in, in great detail. But I think that uh, the views that this is a sort of hair on fire situation that the United States needs to uh, uh, really, really wind itself up about in the near term uh, needs to be scrutinized. The other thing that, you know, again, this is kind of provocative, but I think, uh, you know, provocation is one of the luxuries of working in a think tank, uh, so I will engage in it. Um, you know, Kenneth Waltz, who had this view that uh, nuclear weapons would be unbalanced, stabilizing these sorts of situations, which is in itself a profitable provocative position, wrote in 1995 that a big reason for America's resistance to the spread of nuclear weapons is that if weak countries have some, they will cramp our style. 
And I think that's a big part of what's going on here. There seems to be in Washington a remarkable fear that not so much that Iran will sort of launch this unprovoked nuclear first strike against Israel, which obviously would be an enormously consequential event that I think is uh, terribly unlikely to happen. We can also get into that questions and answers if, uh, if people would like. But there seems to be a very, very great deal of concern about the constraining effect that a nuclear Iran would have on uh, uh, U.S. military options in the Middle East, namely and most prominently the ability to affect regime change by military means inside of Iran. Um, so I guess, to put things in Waltzian terms, I think our style uh, is not terribly desirable, and we should think about altering our overall grand strategic approach in a way that would shift responsibility from ourselves onto our allies, onto regional powers who are uh, visibly panicky about the prospect of a nuclear Iran. But as long as Uncle Sam is contented to gallivant around the globe carrying uh, these sorts of burdens on its shoulders, we really shouldn't be uh, surprised when uh, America is left holding the bag all by itself. So I hope I haven't gone over too long. Uh, in Thank you.